0: Welcome to the Danish National Biobank podcast. We've been gone for quite a while due to the coronavirus pandemic. We return now, however, to give you this special series. With speaks from our co-hosted symposium, scaling omics approaches to population size, This is Klaus Hoyer of the University of Copenhagen. On the topic, the future for donor consent. Thank you very much. And thank you to the organisers for setting up this great programme and also for facilitating that it could be such an inclusive event for people who are here and people who are not here. And I, I do, you know, sympathize with that whole feeling of being zoomed out. <laughs> but I can tell also those of you on the screen that, um, you know, this is also pretty scary. There are real people in this room, <laughs> you know, like with arms and legs, 3D <laughs> reaching beyond a screen and not only serving as digital data points right in front of you under the control also of mute. So. Uh, this is actually going to be about real people. It's going to be about informed consent, uh, which is a relation to the people behind all the data points that we use when we do OMICs. And I think that Lasse had a moment of wishful thinking when he gave me the title, The Future of Informed Consent, uh, imagining that somehow along, you know, the lines of driving over here I would come up with a grand solution that would kind of settle it once and for all yeah which would of course be lovely but which is not gonna happen so with the disappointment right out of the way I can just let you know that I mean at the end of this instead of a grand solution I will have a small piece of simple advice but first let us just consider why are we caring about the relation to donors? Why is it that we are talking about this? And I'll uh, begin by showing a picture that some of you might remember from the time when it featured in Science. It is uh, an image of the uh, Havasupai going to fetch their samples in the freezes as researchers had collected samples for what they thought was uh, uh, research on the high prevalence of diabetes in their community. But as Aboriginal Americans, they were not only disappointed, they were horrified to find out that these samples had been used for a lot of other things as well, including ancestry research. Ancestry research is not only a problematic area in terms of politics and economics for aboriginals, or or not uh, aboriginals, for uh, indigenous Americans, it is uh, really important because it also ties up with entitlements to land. So telling people where they come from is not just a pure academic interest, but it also features uh, other aspects for people who live different lives than the researchers themselves. It touches upon spirituality. They felt deprived of things that matters deeply to their integrity. And as they... Claimed the samples and had them delivered out for um, a ceremonial burial. They were teaching us, who care about Amix, important lessons. Lessons that revolve around the need to care for the relationship to donors. This relationship is a relationship which should have respect, which demands fairness. What is at risk? as well for the people that we uh, uh, use as the data points in our research, but also about the social sustainability, not only for the communities, but also for research itself. If we do not care about this relationship, we might end up with empty freezers. So on that note, let us just uh, briefly uh, think about what has happened in Denmark, where we are now. I mean, it's always nice to think, ah, this is something else. I'm not even going to talk about uh, Greenland examples or anything. I'm going to talk about Denmark and the way in which uh, the new incoming director of the Institute last week wrote about a need for social contract in biopank research. What kind of agreement do we have with donors about how we use their samples? So arguing that there is a need to contemplate this relationship. Let's think about how to establish such relationships and the role of informed consent in them. And Denmark has long been known as a special case in terms of, you know, being a research paradise, using the PIN number that Ara Tupasala talked about for all the Nordic countries. We have had really a resource making Denmark into the epidemiologist dream. But Denmark is special in the case that we have a very lenient framework, much more lenient than any other Nordic countries. It is a framework which uh, uh, gives um, approval or or it makes it possible to do epidemiological research using health data without informed consent and without ethics approval. It's a framework which uh, facilitates biobank research with informed consent exemption if given by a research ethics committee. So we have fabulous conditions under which We can do research for the common good, where we can look into things that you can't look into other places because you have a risk of bias in the selection of the samples, depending on how sensitive things are for people. This is an enormous uh, potential for research. It is something that can be used for the common good and for furthering the interests of the people who actually have their samples stored in the uh, contract, if we care about these interests. So we need to care about Why people are agreeing to this. And if we just step to the other side of Örsöl, uh, then you will find a different uh, legal framework. They have a lot of the same resources, but they have much stricter uh, um, uh, uh, legal rules. And these legal rules reflect a particular history. So uh, 20 years ago Aftenblot had a group of journalists winning a set of prizes on revealing all the secret research on parts of your body. Your body is for sale. This is given uh, uh, public researchers are giving access to private companies. And this kind of scandal led to a a particular biobank law, probably also fueled a bit by all that uh, hula baloo about decode genetics in Iceland that was talking about. Now, what else? typically comes up when you have a crisis in medical research, is informed consent. So if anybody disagrees about anything, you'll look into what did they agree to. So informed consent features as a a particular role. So why consent? Well, if you look upon the ethics literature and you read the philosophers and you go into like, why is it that people argue we need an informed consent? They would say it's for the sake of the patient. We need it in order to guard uh, the patient's uh, uh, sense of autonomy. They should be allowed to decide what they are part of or not. And they also need to be protected. And a series of uh, bad examples have shown that people are sometimes enrolled in research that can be pretty harmful for them. Like the Tuskegee case that many of you would have known about where Afro-Americans were for a long time deprived of uh, treatment because they wanted to see the natural development of uh, 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 syphilis as a disease in a population. Uh, pretty scary to forget to tell people, by the way, you are part of an experiment. Um, so, informed consent has been uh, very effectful and important in terms of ensuring patients' rights in clinical treatment, and also for establishing a sense of agreement about what's going on when people participate in, for example, um uh, randomized clinical controlled tri- uh, trials where there's like, you have to go through this particular set of uh, uh, experiments on your body in this period of time, it's also pretty easy to kind of imagine, what am I saying yes or no to? That's usually also why we're told informed consent works. But that doesn't necessarily work. It means that it works in all types of research. And when we look upon when and how do we actually get informed consent Uh, demands implemented in organizations, there's actually another set of reasons coming up. And we have a lot of different organizational research having shown it's often for the sake of the organization. The institution wanting to do research rather than the patient. The uh, uh, organization needs legitimacy. And also, the informed consent is a pretty neat legal document in terms of transferring entitlements, ownership to tissue. So you can use it to build commercial entitlements. This is why it was so quickly disseminated by the industry and why uh, the American pharmaceutical industry started using informed consent already in the 1930s. So uh, it's not always the reason why we should have informed consent that we do have it. Sometimes it's for a very different set of reasons. And then finally, we could also say... But some new research is indicating that sometimes we should actually have informed consent in certain types of research for the sake of the research itself. People uh, who are in a continuous dialogue with the researchers sometimes understand much better what the researchers need from them and provide the information that researchers need. This doesn't go for all kinds of research, but it does go for some kind of research. So, sometimes... You know, being in a good relationship with your research participants can actually mean you get better data. But just to rule out a particular myth, which comes up every time people talk about informed consent, they say, oh, but you know, if we don't have informed consent, we'll end up like the concentration camps of the Nazi regime, because we have informed consent because of the Nuremberg. You know, uh, after the Second World War, the American war tribunal in Nuremberg Held a a group of German doctors responsible for the uh, experiments on prisoners in the concentration camps. Now, there's this one thing about that story that, uh, you know, we have it because the war tribunal set up Nuremberg, and if we don't um, um, have informed consent in all kinds of situations, it'll probably end up like in the concentration camps, that it's simply not true. For the first, I mean, The war tribunal didn't even mention informed consent. It said voluntary consent. Secondly, Germany was one of the few countries in the world where there was already informed consent in the law from 1931. It did very little to protect the people in the concentration camps. As the people on trial said, you know what? They were not patients, so the law didn't uh, apply to them. You couldn't even do what you were allowed to do uh, on animals, according to the law. So informed consent, as a legal requirement, does very little to protect people if there's no willingness in the community that conducts the research to respect and protect the people they uh, research on. But, I mean, we still need everything we expected of the informed consent. We still need a good relationship to donors, we still need to establish transparency about what we do. We need to respect the people on whom uh, we rely to get data for our research. And we need fairness and justice so that people don't lose rights and entitlements and are put at risk when they uh, are enrolled in our research. We need to think about their interests and protect them. So, basically, we need to care. We need to care about the people uh, from whom the samples come when we do omics. And that also means that we have to have a certain element of interest in what's important to them. So, what do we know about what donors want? Well, that's actually a surprisingly difficult answer to uh, a question to answer. Uh, if we go back to Denmark and look upon health data, uh, many people would refer to a, a, a recent survey. Which said, like, you know, when you ask patients what's important in terms of data, uh, uh, then uh, they say we want more data integration. And it's the second lowest saying better data control. But if you ask in a different manner, uh, like they did at an EU uh, social service survey, Danes came up at the very top of practically everybody saying the most important thing is data control. If we turn to biobanks, the uh, Eurobarometer that measures all around the EU asked for the willingness to donate to a biobank. And here Danes are at the top, just after the Swedes, with uh, 71% saying, I'm willing to donate to a biobank for research. But when they were asked, uh, so do you know what a biobank is, they only 40% said yes. So basically, how you pose the question will give you different forms of answers. Um, I was intrigued by the way in which different uh, ways of framing it led to different uh, answers and at some point I did a survey among people who had contributed to biobank research for a period of 30 years in Sweden and I uh, uh, in the same survey asked the question in different manners uh, through a form of triangulation and it turned out that 55% thought they really ought to be informed but only a minority of them actually knew they had donated And when they asked, so were you content with the information given at the point of donation, they said, yes, the very same people. And when uh, I finally, at the end, asked them to list different forms of concerns when people do research on your sample, the lowest was being personally informed about what my sample participates in. Hmm, this is pretty strange, in a sense. What What is really pretty well established in the research is that when you look upon and observe the real informed consent procedure people rarely read, understand or use the information provided. So what's going on? It took a while for me to acknowledge that some people think it's pretty neat that nothing is kept secret but they don't feel that they personally need to read everything. I remember once there was this uh, kind elderly man who was sitting, uh, you know, uh, eager to get on with his health examination when the nurse who was supposed to collect a sample for research from him asked him to read the consent sheet. And he said, no, that's fine. I'll trust you. Just give me time. And she, she really disliked the fact that the sample was going to a commercial company and she didn't want to take that responsibility. So she kept saying, but you need to read it. And he said, I don't want to read it. And then at the end, after like four times back and forth with that piece of paper, he said, are you going to force me into reading it? And at that point, I realized I got to understand why doesn't he want to read it? Rather than thinking he ought to read it, he ought to read it. Why doesn't he want to read it? Because he felt that he wanted her to take responsibility. He didn't want to feel like I I have to care for myself. I have to know everything, like my sample, what's going on with my sample. And as he said, they could do whatever they want with the sample once they got it. So I got to make sure that they are willing to be responsible. So how do we as a research community take that responsibility? How do we guard that interest? How do we make sure that we keep caring for the people like the kind elderly man? Well a lot of existing studies on what we should know about donor interest, what we should know about what they care, uh, indicates a few common themes. In relation to health data, uh, we did a a meta-review of studies in the European Union, which said basically you are pretty positive towards research, as long as you can see this is for the common good. What counts as common good is a different thing, but we'll return to that. And in relation to biobanks, we saw that, you know what, it's pretty different. It depends upon the tissue type, what you want to know, it depends upon the procurement situation, the... Um, biobank's geographical, social, and historical context. All of this influence what you need to know. There's not one situation which creates a biobank. There are many situations, and people have different expectations in these different situations. So, do biobank donors want to give an informed consent? Should we have an informed consent law of all biobank samples? Well, answering the question up there, I would say, no, it depends. It depends upon the type of research. Uh, common themes that are really important to a lot of people is commercial or public research, for example, and that's really being messed up. As we messed up, as we have lots of examples of a pressure on public research to go commercial. Um, what kind of disease? What kind of themes? What what are you researching? People have different interests. Uh, it also depends upon the relation to the researcher. It, it depends also on whether it's even possible, because biobank research is pretty different from things are, are you no no, no. <laughs> yeah sorry I, I just do you are free to yeah. <laughs> interrupt <laughs> uh, it, it uh, biobank research is different from the randomized clinical control trials that we were talking about where informed consent works fine by way of being able to do research on people who are already dead and which could be exactly interesting because they are dead so it depends uh, and that also leads to a series of new trends uh, things that are going on right now is uh, globally is that we are moving more and more from narrow to broad consent we've had lo- uh, broad consent in Denmark for a long time from more static to dynamic forms of consent and here we use some of the digital tools that we have where people can stay connected and they can also monitor what are you doing now and ask, am I still in agreement uh, that's more for cohort studies and that kind of stuff and then we have Uh, Also, um, a move towards from research content, I'm giving an informed consent for this particular uh, research project, to uh, um, uh, meta consent, I consent to how I consent. And finally, there are some people who want to talk about opt-out, and time is running out for me, so I just want to say we have really bad experience with opt-out. Uh, Last time we had a full research protection uh, registry, it was deleted when too many people uh, decided to opt out of research. Uh, And basically people came in because uh, the municipalities took over the registry and put it on the leaflet for moving. So people were asked when they moved, do you want to be protected against research? And uh, a fifth of the population said yes, but does that really count as, as uh, uh, respect for their autonomy? No. They had no clue what they were saying. We also have uh, the uh, opt-out registry for tissue-based research, but again, remember, it's a new registry. It uh, It is a registration of them. It is not deleting them. Um, and does it protect their autonomy? Does it deliver uh, uh, protection in terms of the risks that our tubercellus talked about as the digital catastrophes? No. no. It doesn't work very well for any of that. So very few people even would know that uh, uh, opt-out possibilities exist. They don't know what it implies, and they have very few ideas about the long-term implications because you opt-out of everything and not of just some things. So I'm not a big fan of opt-out, as you would understand. But to conclude, is it really meaningful to ask people to opt in, informed consent, to everything. Or opt out, I don't want to be part of anything. I don't think so. When we think about what we know about people's interests, it's always conditional. It depends. And that means that we need we need multiple different systems for different types of research. We can't have one, sorry, I'm really sorry, <laughs> but one solution fits all. Uh, but we need to continue being interested in solving this. We need to keep ensuring respect for the people that we study, protection of their interests, also for digital catastrophes. Uh, And we need transparency about what we do. And always think about the political dimension. Who has something at risk, and is that risk equally distributed? What is fair? And then I promised you a simple piece of advice. Well, since there's no grand solution, I mean, at least a tiny little one, And that simple uh, piece of advice is like a different version of the uncle test, you know. Would you let your uncle participate in this experiment? Well, do you think you can explain why what you do is necessary? Why it is of benefit to the people who participate? In a manner that even a 12-year-old would understand. Then I think you are pretty well off. Then you have a reason. If you can't explain... Then you might also be a little too data-driven in your research interests. Then you might also be doing it because we have the data. And you might be doing better research if you're not data-driven, but if you're driven by what we need to know. So thinking in a community with the donors on whom your research rests (coughs) might even stimulate you into making better research. Thank you for your attention.